First, though, as you've likely been hearing on the news, U.S. travelers have been lined up at various border crossings throughout the day. Here's just a little bit of what some were saying to Global News as they waited to get into Canada. We're going up to our family's place um, near Vancouver Island, and um, we haven't been there for about two years. We're traveling up from California, and we're just super excited to finally be making it. Um, it's been you know, he loves he loves this place and, and it's just um, so sad that we haven't been able to come in such a long time, but just super excited. Yeah, we haven't been up since August 2019. We love Canada and uh, we've been waiting for months to get in. We were supposed to be going to Alaska, but plans got changed. So we've been kind of hovering over the border waiting to get in. So we're taking the ferry from Vancouver to um, Vancouver Island and we're going to spend time in various places on the island haven't been to Vancouver or the island in 34 years. So um, we're really excited. We're going to go visit my parents who live in Ladner. Well, good. I mean, we'll see if we actually make it through. I'll believe it when I get there, but I'm excited. Um, love Canada and, and looking forward to all that's up there. So this is the first time we're coming back. So yeah, we're excited for it. A lot of excitement as people made their way across the border. Let's check in now with Gary Holloway-Chuck, president of West Coast Duty Free. Gary, thanks for coming back on the show. Well, thanks, Jill. Love to be back on the show with you. Well, last time we were talking about how rough things had been, how your business was really suffering, obviously, because of the border closure, the border shutdown. What does this opening to fully vaccinated U.S. residents mean for you? Well, our fingers are crossed. Um, what I'm seeing at the border today is kind of what I expected, big lineups, but not with a lot of cars, just because it seems to be taking uh, anywhere from 10 minutes to I don't know how long to get through the border per vehicle. Uh, it, they've got a lot of questions asked. They've got a lot of paperwork to fill out. And it seems that a lot of the Americans heard that you were allowed to come across as long as you were double jab, but they didn't hear the rest. Mm. So I, I'm assuming a lot of them are coming, you know, without their testing or maybe without their uh, 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 online paperwork filled out. Right, because even in uh, some of those voices that I just played, I didn't include this in there just to for didn't have time to put everybody in. But there was one gentleman uh, sitting in his car saying, "I even brought my updated papers just in case they need that, or I, I even put it into the app just in case." And I thought, "Ooh, that's not a just in case. That's one of the requirements needed to come into the country." Yeah. So, uh, like I said, I'm expecting that Canada Customs officers will be walking them through if they haven't done a certain amount of paperwork, but that's going to take time. And so, consequently, you're going to have lineups at the border, even if there's 50 people that want to come through. It's going to take a while. So, you know, I'm, like I say, my, my fingers are crossed cautiously. We're taking the wait-and-see scenario. We're staying open. We're ready to expand our hours. We're ready to do whatever, whatever the market bears. But, but we're but we're holding our breath. And as far as your business, do you have duty-free stores on both sides, or which which are the travelers that are going to benefit you the most? No, we are West Coast duty-free. We are only located on the Canadian side 
at the truck crossing on the 176th Street truck crossing. So for you as well, when you see the U.S. residents coming this way, it's really only when they start going back home, I would imagine, that you're going to start seeing that benefit. Yes, we don't expect we'll be seeing any of that until perhaps the weekend. Uh, again, they've, they've gone through a lot of stuff to get to be able to come through the border. I'm expecting that most of them are coming up for a week or two. So we'll, I mean, we're, we're just watching the traffic like a hawk, uh, ready to respond to it as, as much as we can. And how have you had to change what, you've, what you're doing now? I know last time we talked to you, there were very few staff members, very, very few people coming into the West Coast Duty Free Shop. What have you done to kind of anticipate this or to get ready for people starting to come back? Well, I'm starting meetings with my staff, with management, and then moving into the rest of my staff to try to put them on alert. But it's, it's really hard to do and especially hard to do since we haven't heard anything from the Americans, whether they're going to allow Canadians down on the, on the 21st. And, uh, you know, until that news comes out, I mean, the Canadians make up probably close to three quarters of the traffic that goes through the border. So, you know, that will be, that will be the big one. And even then they still have to be double vaccinated and, and we don't know whether the Americans are going to require testing or, or what the scenarios will be. And I would imagine, though, that's, that's where you're going to see the crowds come back, whether it's somebody coming in for a bottle of wine or somebody coming in to pick that item up before they go into the States again for however long they're, they're going to go into the States once that's allowed. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, like, I mean, the Americans coming up right now, we won't see them until they're ready to go home however long that is. When the Canadians are allowed to go down, hopefully we'll see them that very first morning. (laughs) And you mentioned the 21st when the extension, that border closure, uh, again, could be extended or we could have some update. Uh, I think you kind of answered this, but are you hearing anything kind of with your ear on that, talking to, to people who are in the know? Are you hearing anything about what we might be anticipating? Well, my ear is definitely on me all over the place, and I'm back into Ottawa and through our association. I'm into, you know, into they've got connections in, in right into Washington, and everything is being very hush hush. And I'm, you know, that's that's not music to my ears. I would rather they came out front and gave us a heads up so we could do the planning, but we will. We will react as quickly as we can. Did you end up throwing away much merchandise or things that expired? Well, we didn't throw away. Well, we did. We threw away a a ton of cigarettes that were expired. Uh, So at this point, all of our cigarettes in the store are all uh, fresh. But uh, we paid duty on all of our confectionery and distributed it out into the local community, mainly to the food banks and the women's shelters and the handicapped kids. And we took cases and cases to a bunch of the schools. And you know what, it was a, it was a, it was a scenario that it, rather than put it in a dumpster, if we can, you know, cost us an extra 10 to 20%, but we, we paid the duty and we, and we gave it away. 
Which it, which is a great thing to be able to do or to kind of take that hit rather than throw it all away if it was still good, definitely. Gary, we'll leave it there. Hopefully, next time we talk to you, it will be on an even brighter, more positive note. But thanks, as always, for coming on the show with this update. Okay, Joe, I appreciate it, and uh, you have a wonderful day. Well, this is one of the stories making news headlines today. A United Nations panel on climate change warning people that global warming is dangerously close to being out of control. The findings in the report are from more than 230 scientists who say the planet is warming even faster than previously thought. The new report from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on climate change says that the world will likely warm by more than one and a half degrees in the 2030s. It says that some changes to our climate are already inevitable and irreversible. The report concludes wild weather events such as heat waves, wildfires, droughts and flood inducing downpours will likely worsen and become more frequent unless there are deep reductions in carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions in the coming decades. That is Global News reporter Bindu Suri. Let's bring in someone very close to this report. Greg Flato is a senior research scientist with the Canadian Centre for Climate Modelling and Analysis. Greg, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, This report, I think it's about 3,000 pages long, so forgive me, I have not read the entire report, but certainly we've been looking at some of the highlights. Uh, In that report as well, talking about that 1.1% number, what sticks out to you, if you could even kind of highlight the the points in this that we should be paying the most attention to? Well, I think uh, a couple of things. One is that we're already about 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial uh, average temperature. That is, the, the world has warmed by one and a half, 1.1 degrees Celsius at this point. And if we want to limit warming to one and a half degrees, there is very little uh, carbon dioxide emissions left that we could put into the atmosphere uh, without exceeding that level. So we're, we're, we're getting very close to the carbon budget. That is the amount of carbon we can put into the atmosphere and still keep temperatures below one and a half degrees. It also talks a lot, or there's been a lot of attention paid to that this really points to the human connection in that there, there will be people who say, but if you go back, you can see that it's cyclical. We've seen heat. We've seen temperatures like this before. We've seen weather events like this before. But this report really points at that connection between human activity and what we're seeing happening with our planet right now. Is there, does this do that more, do you think, than other studies have? Well, it does. We've had the last IPCC report uh, came out in 2013. So we're now eight years further on. We have eight years more observations. We have newer models that uh, allow us to make projections of future change. We have uh, this report cites something like 14,000 scientific papers that have been uh, published that, that look at this topic. So we're able to say with much more confidence that human activity is the cause of the warming that we have been observed. It's it's simply an unequivocal fact at this point. And with the rise of 1.5% or sorry, 1.5 degrees Celsius, what I'm seeing in this as well is saying that that's generally seen as the most that humanity could really cope with without huge upheaval caused by this. So when we hear from so many leaders saying that this report is hopefully going to be a wake up call for the world to take action now, what do you think that action should look like? 
But what this report shows is that in order to stabilize temperature at one and a half degrees or two degrees or some level like that, uh, what has to happen is rapid and deep emission cuts globally to get emissions uh, going downward and ultimately reaching net zero by the, the middle of the century. And I should just clarify that that one and a half degrees is not some magical value. It is a, a target, and part of the Paris Agreement was to aim to limit temperature uh, increase well below two degrees and strive for one and a half degrees. But there's nothing particular about one and a half degrees. It's just been identified that as you get more, as temperature warms beyond one and a half degrees, the the impacts become more and more severe. And so every increment of warming beyond that leads to more and more uh, of these damaging impacts like extreme events becoming more and more uh, frequent and and, uh, more intense. Does it also show things that perhaps are irreversible or, or things that if it is irreversible, is it does it point that out and maybe help us guide people as to where we need to focus our efforts then? Yes, indeed, there are some some aspects of, of climate change that are irreversible on, on human relevant timescales, that is, you know, centuries into the future. Uh, a couple of those are uh, the melting of the large ice sheets, Greenland and Antarctica. Once you warm the climate up, those uh, ice sheets are already starting to melt and putting water into the ocean. And even if you stabilize temperature, they will continue to melt for a long time because they have to slowly uh, catch up to the to the new warmer climate. Similarly, the ocean temperature has to slowly catch up to the new warming temperature, to the new atmospheric temperature. And that means that sea level will continue to rise for centuries, even if we stabilize temperature. And what do you think it says then about, uh, say, a country like Canada, where we have been quite resource dependent in the past and making that shift to more green, more environmental fuels and that type of an economy? Uh, does it mean we need to speed that up? Well, what this report provides is the scientific understanding of what emissions, greenhouse gas emissions do to, to the climate. It lays out a set of five illustrative scenarios. None of these are prescriptive. The, this report doesn't uh, tell governments what to do or tell, you know, prescribe anything. It just lays out scenarios of low emission pathways, medium emission pathways, and high emission pathways. And illustrates the consequences of those. But the low emission pathway illustrates very clearly that if we want to stabilize temperature at levels like one and a half or two degrees, emissions have to start going down immediately and and the, the cuts have to be rapid and sustained if we want to meet that target. And just one other question, you mentioned the Paris Agreement as well. How important is it that this gets buy-in from everybody? It can't, I would imagine, be piecemeal in that some countries are doing this and others aren't. Well, that's right. It is a global problem. These, uh, especially carbon dioxide, is a well-mixed, long-lived gas in the atmosphere. When you put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it stays there for, for many decades, even centuries. And so... It gets well mixed. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It all it all gets combined in the atmosphere and all leads to, to warming. So it's a global problem that requires global emission reductions. 
All right. Greg, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for being available and for coming on the show to talk more about this report. It was my pleasure. Just a quick update for you on the immunization plan in BC. Health officials have confirmed they are reducing the intervals for people getting their first and second doses of COVID-19 vaccine. So it's being reduced to a gap interval to 28 days, and that's for everybody in BC. We're going to have more details on that coming up in about 15 minutes. Right now, we want to talk about a story that goes back several decades. It has to do with D.B. Cooper vanishing out of the back of a Boeing 727, wearing a business suit, a parachute, packing hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash. And a crime historian is now trying to get more information on what actually happened. That crime historian and expert on the D.B. Cooper case is Eric Eulis, and he joins us now to talk more about this. Eric, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. My pleasure. Uh, I understand you spent a couple of days in the area where it's believed D.B. Cooper vanished. What were you doing? Actually, we were focused on the area where the money was found. There was a portion of D.B. Cooper's ransom that was found in 1980. Uh, but uh, simply put, we were digging uh, very near the actual spot where the money was found, looking at a spot that the FBI did not look at back in 1980 uh, for the purposes of hope- hopefully finding a buried parachute or a buried uh, attache case. And so that, that. <laughs> sorry, that was the area near, was it the Columbia River Beach? That's correct. It's uh, on the uh, on the Columbia River, a place called Tina Bar. So that was in 1980, as you mentioned, and it was uh, a, a boy digging on the beach. But he found, I, I'm understanding, he found about six thousand dollars. Was that correct? That's correct. He found uh, six thousand dollars, three packets, basically of uh, very rotted twenty dollar bills. Uh, and there, which were about 50 feet from the water's edge, had an elevation on the beach about seven or eight feet above the level of the river. Uh, and, of course, when that was found in 1980, it was about eight years after the skyjacking. It had got everybody uh, scratching their heads because uh, where the money was found was about 20 miles away from the FBI search zone. In other words, where the FBI believed that D.B. Cooper had jumped. Uh, so I think that money find spot's a pretty clear indication that where the FBI was focused uh, is askew, that that's is wrong. Uh, so uh, I'm of the belief that the, the items that he jumped with, uh, specifically the parachutes, the attache case uh, in particular, which have never been found, are still out there. And uh, it makes sense to me that all of that stuff was buried about the same time and about the same place. Uh, so that's exactly what we're looking for right now. So this is something that happened back November 24th, 1971. Why is it so important to you to find this and to get these answers? You know, it's, I don't, I don't know if it's important. It's just fascinating. I just, it's just one of those human nature type of things uh, that uh, for whatever reason, D.B. Cooper just struck a chord. And I don't know if it was a, you know, I actually, I suppose it's a combination of a few things. It was the, the time, uh, 1971, a, a very the tumultuous time in American history, of course, uh, the crime itself, which, uh, you know, D.B. Cooper wasn't violent. You know, nobody was harmed or anything of that nature. In fact, uh, the, the passengers weren't even aware that they had been skyjacked until they departed the jet and were met by law enforcement. So uh, that was handled in that way. 
Plus, D.B. Cooper sort of handled himself in sort of a James Bond-esque kind of manner. So it's just one of those things that's just uh, uh, permeated the American consciousness for the last 50 years. To date, it's the only unsolved skyjacking in United States history. That is fascinating. You're right. And I think a lot of people would agree. I want to play just a a quick clip. This is from uh, an upcoming HBO documentary. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger. But today, after hijacking a Northwest Airlines jet, master criminal. He demanded $200,000 and four parachutes. Then he disappeared. D.B. Cooper. Don't know his identity. Don't know where he came from. Don't know what happened to him. There was one key thing your husband said to you. I'm Dan Cooper. And I think you're right. So many people want more answers and want to know what happened. From your research and what you've learned about this, what do you think happened to him? I think the evidence is clear that he survived and that he walked away. Uh, The money, I believe, was buried temporarily because I think his initial plan was to jump in the outskirts of Seattle. The jet took off from Seattle after the passengers were released and he received his $200,000 in cash plus four parachutes. Uh, But there were a couple of things that delayed his jump, uh, and he was unable to jump in the exurbs of Seattle, and I think he took the next best opportunity, which happened to be the exurbs of Portland, Portland, Vancouver, Washington area. Uh, So I think he survived. I think he got away. I think it was a one-off event. I do not believe the guy was a career criminal. And I think uh, that he got away in no large part because he just didn't talk about it. You know, he was just one of these people that uh, didn't brag at the bar to his buddies or anything of that nature. And uh, it's, it's, that's, that's about it. I, I do not believe he was some sort of military black ops guy or that there was some sort of inside job or cover-up or anything like that. I think he was a guy who was down on his luck financially. There was a lot going on back then, 1971. And uh, he just happened to be one step ahead of the authorities the entire way, and it's as simple as that. Did he continue living then? And in that clip, that was a woman who claimed she was married to Dan Cooper. Did he continue to live his life then as himself? He didn't change his identity or anything like that? Well, the name uh, Dan Cooper is is, is not a real name. Uh, there was no nobody who was actually named Dan Cooper or D.B. Cooper who skied skyjacked the jet right uh the the person that you're referencing there is a woman named joe weber she claimed that her husband on his deathbed um confessed to being uh db cooper but uh frankly i think that's a bunch of baloney Uh, (laughs) uh, there there have been several people literally hundreds of people who have confessed to being db cooper uh and of course uh, i think that just runs completely contrary to the man himself uh Again, given it's been 50 years and this guy got away with it and the FBI knows really very little about the guy, I think that tells you something about him. And the last thing he's doing is confessing or bragging about or anything of that nature. The one common thread uh, among all these people that have confessed over the years is they cannot prove it. They have absolutely nothing to prove the claim. A $20 bill, one of the notes written by one of the flight attendants, you know, a story that actually makes sense. (laughs) So uh, I just think it's one of those things. I don't want to call it stolen valor, but it's that type of thing where you just have a lot of people for whatever reason want to make their uh, mark, so to speak. And they see this as a target, as an opportunity, because it's still, you know, yet to be solved. 
The $6,000 that was found, the three bundles of those weathered $20 bills, what does that tell you? Do you think he buried all of the money, the 200000 and somehow was able to come back and get the bulk of it? Or do you think there's still money buried there? I think that I think that's exactly what happened, because when the money was delivered to D.B. Cooper, it was delivered in a white canvas bank bag and it was full almost to the top. It didn't have a zipper on it, didn't have any snaps, didn't even have a handle. So Cooper immediately realized, in fact, he complained about it. You know, he immediately realized he's going to have to do something to tie that bag shut. Otherwise, the money was going to go all over the place. Uh, but it was so full that I believe he had to remove some of those packets before he could tie off that bank bag. And that excess, the, the, the overflow excess packets of 20s were placed somewhere else when he jumped. So uh, I believe when he landed, he realized he had to temporarily bury the money because he couldn't very well walk back into town carrying all this cash. Uh, so I think he dug a hole in the sand. He threw the bag of cash in the hole, as well as those loose packets, those excess packets. He threw those in the hole as well, covered them up. Then a period of time later came and retrieved them, presumably at night. And uh, just unbeknownst to him, three of those packets got left behind at the time that he retrieved the rest of it. But I think that explains how three of those packets got separated from the rest of the ransom. It's so funny to hear that number as well, the $200,000, which in today's standards, and I mean, this was almost 50 years ago, but not centuries ago, it doesn't seem like a ton of money. And like you said, it's quite possible this person wasn't a career criminal or a violent person, although he did say, I had a bomb, I have a bomb, and, and told the flight attendant to sit sit next to him. Do you think it's enough then, even if he did walk with all of the cash minus 6000 dollars that he was able to just live his life not have to work again and somehow just that was his plan well one uh two hundred thousand dollars in 1971 in today's money is over 1.2 million we're talking u.s dollars here 1.2 million so if he was smart uh sure he should have been able to set himself up for life uh, but going back to one comment that you re- mentioned about, <clears throat> you know, not threatening anybody or having a bomb or what have you, it's one of the notable things because his only real threat was if you don't do what I want, I'll do the job. That was his term is I'll do the job. So when you read about some of the things he said and so forth, it, it seemed like he phrased things euphemistically. I do the job is not like saying, hey, I'm going to blow up everybody and kill everybody. Right. So there are a lot of indications in just the way he spoke and some of the words and language that he used that ironically struck me that he was somewhat uncomfortable in that situation. Therefore, he said, I'll do the job. Uh, the implication being clear, of course, that he'll, you know, he'll blow the plane up or whatever. Uh, but uh, having said all that, I do believe the bomb was fake. No need to have a real bomb. And he jumped with it anyway. So that also seems to indicate that it was not a real bomb. But nonetheless, it, uh, it served its purpose. How long do you plan to continue doing these types of searches and looking for this? Uh, we've got a fair amount of work still to do on this particular part of the beach that we're looking at. It's about 300 square feet. Uh, It's, uh, you know, in later years, there was a lot of uh, material rock and dirt and so forth that was laid upon or placed upon the beach for the purposes of uh, stopping erosion. There's been an enormous amount of erosion there. So it's very difficult for us because we cannot use heavy machinery. It just requires, you know, people with picks and shovels and that kind of thing. 
we have to pound through about two feet of uh, a very compact rock and dirt on the surface uh, before we get down to the actual beach. But uh, we're talking several more days, which will take place over the next month, month and a half before this area is done. As to the rest of the uh, the mystery, the question, I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to say if at some point I'm going to get uh, get tired of it or be done with it all, or for that matter, if we find something in the case is uh, solved. So uh, I guess that's just yet to be determined. All right. Well, I hope to do an update with you when you have found some of those items, and we can talk more about this. For now, though, Eric, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining me to talk more about this today. Wonderful. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, there has been another drowning. RCMP confirming that there was a drowning off Tofino on Long Beach. A trip to Tofino ending in tragedy for one person on Saturday. This comes at the same time we learned that a body was recovered from Alice Lake. There was a drowning in that lake as well. So we thought it would make sense to spend a little bit of time talking about the dangers we see on BC waters. Why we're seeing this number of drownings and how to stay safe when enjoying the great outdoors and the many lakes and waterways in this province. Dale Miller is joining us now, Executive Director of the Life-Saving Society of BC and Yukon. Dale, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's never fun to talk about things like this and stories that end with a life being lost. But do we know at this point how we're doing or the number of drownings that we've seen in the province so far this year? Our records are certainly preliminary, Jill. But uh, at this point, we're seeing uh, 32 records of drownings in British Columbia to date this year. And that compares with uh, to the same date last year, about 25. So there is certainly an increase. We did see uh, quite a number of drownings in June this year. And, and I guess, is it more people are out? People are doing staycations and are perhaps trying to explore other parts of the province? Or do we know why we might see that jump in the numbers? It's tough to say. Over the years, we have actually seen quite a decrease in the numbers. If we were to go back three or four years, that 32 would be low. So it's it's really tough to say. I mean, we're, we've got uh, more staycations. Other years, we would have more tourists who might not know our local waters. So, uh, But we've also had some excellent weather, quite a stretch here. So that definitely contributes because, of course, more people are out on the water trying to keep cool. We talked to a, young, a woman last week, and she and her partner and some others who were uh, visiting uh, uh, Harrison Lake, I believe it was, um, they were able to save somebody who was in distress and who was in the process of slipping under the water and was really having difficulty. The reason she wanted to come on the show was to talk more about the fact that it looks nothing like what you see in the movies, or at least this particular case didn't look anything like that. How important is it for people to make sure they know what the signs are and what a drowning actually looks like. Right. Yeah, no, I heard that story, and it is definitely a great success story that we'd like to hear more of. And uh, and she couldn't have said it better. You know, it's not what you see in, in the movies and on TV. Uh, it can be very silent. It can be very quick. And uh, the main thing is that that person who is drowning is looking to get their next breath. So they're not going to waste it yelling, and, and in fact, they're motions are going to try to keep them above the water so they may not have the arms flailing in the air like we usually see so she was very accurate in her portrayal of of what had happened there 
And do we get that message out enough, do you think, that people would be able to see? Like you said, she she was on it, as were some others around there, and they jumped into action. But does that happen often, do you think, or do you know of, that people are in distress and people just don't recognize the signs? It's not uncommon at all, yes. That's that's unfortunately the case. And, uh, you know, we're, we're very glad to hear what happened at, at Harrison Lake. In fact, the... Uh, the life ring that they used to help make the rescue. Uh, we're very pleased that the village of Harrison Hot Springs decided to install those. We supply them from the Life Saving Society, and she mentioned those were super critical. So that's a key piece. But the other piece, too, I think that's important here is that if people were at lifeguard supervised swim areas, those lifeguards are trained to look for those kinds of things. And so that would definitely make a difference if. Uh, First off, if people would uh, seek out a lifeguard-supervised area to swim at, but secondly, if we had more lifeguard-supervised waterfronts in BC as well. We've talked about this before, and it t- tended to kind of the numbers or the, or the cases of drownings show, showed a certain demographic in that there were often more younger men that unfortunately drowned in this province every year. Is that still the case? Well, uh, excellent point, because this year uh, it does seem to be a little bit different. Uh, so if we were to look at uh, at last year's numbers, you would see quite a number in the 18 to 24-year-old category. Uh, this year, we're seeing them in the 25 to 49 and even um, 50 to 64 demographics. So it is shifting this year. Again, it's tough to know the reasons or you know whether this is just a uh, a blip on the screen or a trend. We we hope that uh, it's not a trend that will continue. And what about the message about people being on the water? And I know we talk about this every year as well, but obviously not everybody gets the message, the idea of alcohol while on the water. Yeah, and that's such an important thing. You know, unfortunately, each year we do see approximately a third of the drownings are boat related. And of those, many of them are alcohol related. And even some of the swimming related uh, drownings have alcohol involved as well. So I think it just makes people uh, overestimate their their skills. And of course, uh, judgment uh, decreases, all of those things that, that we know are effects of alcohol. And uh, certainly when you're in water, that can become very dangerous. Uh, flotation devices, we obviously, well, I guess I shouldn't say obviously. Some people, especially younger people, children, will often wear them while swimming, whether it's at the lake or at a seashore somewhere on the coast. Adults tend not to wear them as much when swimming. What about when partaking in sports, such as maybe paddle boarding or kayaking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we wish that more would would wear the life jacket or personal flotation device when they're paddleboarding. But there are other ways. They, there are uh, inflatable pouches that they can carry that are not too intrusive. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people rely on that uh, leash. And in fact, some don't wear that. But if they rely on that and they um, hit the water and potentially hit their head on the paddleboard on the way in, you know, that leash is not going to help them in that case, whereas a an inflatable um, ring or some form of flotation would help in that case. So if you're going to choose between the two, the better one, if it's if it's a one or the other for you, the better choice is the flotation device? Yeah, absolutely. And and they don't need to be the, the large uh, orange ones that, that we're used to. They, they come in inflatable versions that uh, are, are very, very small and, and not the, the large pieces that we're used to. 
Any other advice for people as we continue? I know we're going to have some more hot weather coming up in BC. And like we said, a lot of people doing the staycations and trying to check out different waterways and different little places, little paradises in the province. Any other advice as people are continuing to do that? Yeah, I think the best advice, Jill, is just to be prepared for the area you're going to. Know the water that you're going to. Uh, are there undertows? Is there a current? Um, those kinds of things and drop-offs as well. Uh, but also just to be prepared if something were to happen. Are you ready? In this, the case at uh, Harrison, we were lucky that there was one of the life rings there. Um, but uh, in other cases, you just need to make sure that you've got something to take with you so that we don't have another victim. First reaction, unfortunately, is often just to jump in and and make the save. But uh, we just want to make sure that everybody has a great time on the water and we can decrease the drownings in British Columbia. Uh, That's an interesting point. I know you you touched on this earlier as well, but I would imagine the adrenaline gets you too. If you notice that somebody is in distress in the water, you're right. The first thing you're going to think is, oh my goodness, I want to help save that person. Do people overestimate how strong of a swimmer they are in that scenario or or overestimate their strength in that not, not realizing, I guess, how difficult it can be to actually pull somebody out of the water and back to safety? Yeah, that's it exactly. And and not only do they uh, overestimate their abilities, but uh, they may have uh, very few water skills, yet, as you say, that is the first reaction. They will want to jump in. And again, unfortunately, we do see a couple of drownings each year of a rescuer. They they actually rescue someone, but they drown themselves. So those are very sad situations that we want to uh, prevent. So thinking ahead and... Um, you know, just just realizing, too, as uh, Emily said about the situation at Harrison, that uh, there is definitely some some signs that you think you will see uh, that, that you may not. So just be aware, supervise kids around the water. Uh, you know, we're we're so glad that Emily and, and her uh, boyfriend made that rescue. In fact, they'll be up for an award, a rescue award from the Life Saving Society at our annual ceremony next year. So we need more stories like that. All right. That's uh, great that they're getting recognized, uh, recognition for that as well. Dale, we'll leave it there for today. As always, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you very much, Jill. Appreciate it.